0: This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital-setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to govx.com, G-O-V-X register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Show podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue and we all know that these heavy duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks, I have the AMP pack myself, the civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts, I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 364 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Australian psychologist Simon Matthews. Simon is a member of Well Coaches Australia and also First in Wellness, along with two of my previous guests, Danielle Cook and Mike Salemi. So we discuss a host of topics from mental health in first responders and veterans to how he almost lost his sight, the healing power of nature, combat sports for decompression and so many other areas. Before we get to that interview, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does make us more visible for people looking for a project like this. And then this is a free library for you, the audience, individually, organizationally, however you want to use it. So all I ask in return is that you just take a moment share these incredible men and women's episodes so I can get them to everyone on planet Earth who needs to hear them. And as a side note, my book, One More Light, Life, Death and Humanity Through the Eyes of a Firefighter is now available on Amazon worldwide. So that being said, I introduce to you, Simon Matthews. Enjoy. Simon, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time in Australian time. So, we're playing this, uh, you know, um, like Russian roulette of times and dates to make this work. So, thank you for coming on the show.
1: My pleasure, James. Great to great to be here and thank you for
0: the invitation. So, where on planet Earth are we finding you today?
1: Today, you are finding me about one hour north of Sydney, Australia. So, uh, so it's a, a little city called Gosford. Um and uh, yeah, lovely, lovely seaside, uh, seaside city. And uh, and I'm in the very uh, fortunate position of living uh, both ab- about a 10-minute, uh, well, in fact, less than a 10-minute drive from uh, from some of the most beautiful beaches. But also, uh, I can walk down to the end of my street and walk straight up into national park. So uh, it's a lovely, lovely, uh, lovely spot on planet Earth to uh, to live.
0: Beautiful. Yeah, I spent a few months living in Manly in in Sydney.
1: Ah, well, Manly Manly is the place where I was born.
0: So. Oh, really? Well, that's a great segue because that was my first question. <laughs> so, tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and um, how many siblings?
1: Yeah. So, uh, so my uh, my dad was an attorney, uh, a lawyer. We would call him over here uh, a barrister, in fact. Um, and uh, and my mum did uh, did a number of things Uh, i mean back in the the 1960s when i was born her role was one of uh, raising children but she had also uh, managed uh, her brother's architectural office for a number of years and then she went on to uh, to do a great deal of office management in in legal firms and then eventually uh, in a school in a uh, in an elementary school she became a a pa to the uh, to the principal of the school so, uh, so she had she had her own uh, own career as well, um, and uh, m- mum and dad are both uh, both deceased now. But I do have uh, I do have one uh, sibling, a sister, who uh, actually coincidentally <laughs> lives uh, lives here in the in the same place as me, uh, about uh, maybe maybe uh, eighty meters or hundred meters away as the uh, as the crow flies. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a small small family, but uh, but that's us.
0: Beautiful. Now, growing up at the school ages, did you have any exposure to psychology or any uh, related fields? Oh,
1: no, I don't think. No, I can't. I can't say I did, really. Um, and, you know, with with the with the benefit of hindsight, I, I look back now. So my my primary or elementary school years were uh, were the early to mid. Uh, 1970s or early to late 1970s and if I look back now I think the field of psychology was probably quite nascent at the time I I don't think I I don't think it was a very well-developed field of study back then not in this country anyway um, so uh, no, I didn't didn't really have any uh, any exposure at all. In fact, I think uh, you know as a as a child the the things I wanted to be in order were probably um, firefighter. Um, I, I, I was I was absolutely obsessed with uh, with um, with fire departments when I was a kid. And, I, and as, as I'm saying this to you right now, I'm 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 picturing the uh, the fire station uh, in the suburb that I uh, grew up in, uh, not far from Manly, and. Um, and, uh, you know, the, that, that childhood thrill of, of, of hearing the sirens and, and, and seeing the engine kind of roar out of the, roar out of the station. So, so that, that was a, that was a childhood obsession. And then I, I guess I went through all the usual things. You know, I, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a, uh, I wanted to be a, a fighter pilot and I wanted to be a, uh, uh an airline pilot. Uh, in fact, I, I almost did become that, uh, almost did become an airline pilot just quite recently, actually. And um, uh, then I wanted to be – well, I actually, I didn't want to be. I, I stumbled into radio and broadcasting. So when I was at the university, um, I got introduced to the, the local community uh, radio station at the university. Uh, and I got very interested in, in broadcasting and, and producing Uh, and presenting radio shows. I used to stand in for the breakfast announcer if he was on leave. Uh, And then I went off to film TV and radio school uh, here in in Australia. I I didn't complete it. I I didn't actually like commercial radio that that much, but... um, uh, but I do, but I do still have a passion for, uh, for broadcasting and, uh, and broadcast radio in particular. So, so, so I very nearly ended up, uh, very nearly ended up there. Uh, but then I, uh, started doing some voluntary work, uh, at a, a youth refuge, a, you know, a, a, a service that provided accommodation for homeless young people. And, uh, that, that voluntary work led to some casual paid work. Uh, that casual paid work led to some permanent part-time work, which eventually led to some full-time work. And in the course of that, I was introduced to someone who was a psychologist. And in particular, he provided uh, uh, family therapy. So he he would meet with not only the young person, but also their family members, and um, I asked him if I, with, with little or with really no knowledge of this, I, I asked him if I could sit in one day on, on one of these consultations and he was happy for that. Uh, and he, he practiced a particular type of, of family therapy, um, which many people probably won't be familiar with, but it's called, it's called Milan as in the city in Italy, Milan systemic family therapy. Uh, and, I've got to say, James, I fell in love. I just, I, I absolutely fell in love with with this way of engaging with and interacting with people, and this and this way of understanding the operation of families as a system, um, both a both a, an internal or semi closed system, and part of a part of a broader system of of networks and relationships in a in a community, in a locale, in a country, and and so on. And and it was really that that. Sparked my uh, interest then in in psychology and and led to this whole other whole other avenue that I've uh, ended up pursuing. So um, very very circuitous, uh, very circuitous route to to uh, (laughs) get where I got to today, but um, but uh, very enjoyable nonetheless.
0: Brilliant. Now, just uh, not to delve too much, but I always ask this question because you know, it can sometimes open some doors. Um, many of the responders and military that I've had on the show, a lot of them had surprisingly quite significant trauma when they were children. Um, and that I think, you know, subconsciously led, I think a lot of them to those roles to become the, the their protector and also to break the cycle as well. Yeah, Was there anything yeah. having? Being immersed in that that environment now when you look back on your own childhood that you factor in might have contributed to anything that happened in your life
1: yeah interesting question james and i and i can honestly say ap- absolutely nothing and, and you know from where i stand now i look back across my life and um and uh, you know I, I feel i feel um yeah. and it's it's really nothing nothing to do with me it's not it's not, not of my creation, but, but I feel very fortunate to have, um, to have had the, the childhood and upbringing that I had in the place that I had it. You know, where, um, uh, you know, I was I was uh, cared for. You know, um, there was there was nothing that I needed that I didn't have. Um, you know, the uh, our family, of course, had all the ups and downs that uh, that uh, families have uh, all over the world, but but nothing that was. Nothing that I would consider, you know, significantly, uh, significantly traumatic. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing at all. So I, I do, I do feel very fortunate to have um, to have got to this point in my life, and uh, and and to be able to look back and 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 say that to myself through, you know, through through no creation of my own. I just I just happen to have been fortunate enough to to have had the life that I've had to this point
0: yeah well i think that's a very important um you know spectrum to have out there and it's something i've talked about myself i I have had some events that people could could class as trauma it was in a house fire when i was a little boy my parents got divorced um but again i was given the tools the environment the parenting where i was very fortunate and even though i'm sure it had an impact it didn't have like a long-term negative impact for me so there are, you know, for us that are out there that have had that very fortunate lifestyle, you know, that, that, those, those coping mechanisms, that close family unit. I think what's important for people to understand is that if we look back and we're grateful, then our role then becomes that we have to become the beacon. We have to become the helper and look for the people that haven't been as lucky as us and help them
1: yeah absolutely right james and and to do so in a really and and i aim to do this in all my work to to, to do this in a very um to do this in a very humble way that that, that recognizes that that uh, where i happen to be in my life i mean of course we all the, the more the more we um the more we adult in life the more we the more we grow up and and uh, and live adult lives the more influence we have over the lives uh, we lead however um Very few of us can say you know through our childhood and adolescence that that we had really any opportunity to significantly significantly influence the, the course or direction of our lives. so so I, I you know I, I aim to do this from a, a position of, of you know profound gratitude that I have had the life that I have and, and also humility to in recognizing that um, that it wasn't it wasn't of my creation. Uh, I'm I'm really literally just fortunate in that uh, in that respect.
0: Absolutely. Well, you mentioned before we started recording that you had worked with veterans and first responders. So which came first mm. along your psychology route?
1: Uh, first one was first first was actually first responders. So so back in the day, and I'm I'm going back. Um, I'm going back uh, probably 20, well over over 20 years now. Um, I uh, used to do a considerable amount of work in uh, what we call over here um, EAP or Employee Assistance Programs. So workplace uh, uh, psychology and counselling programs set up to provide um, often often immediate and sometimes uh, short to medium term support. To uh, people in workplaces all over the country, but some of the very early work that I did was with uh, first responders, and in particular, um, in particular, police and paramedics, um, and then subsequently fire departments. That that then morphed over time into uh, uh, work that more focused on uh, supporting. People who had been diagnosed with uh, commonly PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, often also comorbid anxiety uh, or depression, uh, and so my my work changed from that um, from that early intervention to a more intensive type of um, more intensive type of therapy, I guess, with uh, with those groups. Then somewhere around that time, I began also working with. Uh, with veterans uh, through one of the services that that we have over here, it used to, it used to be called uh, over here the Vietnam Veterans uh, Counseling Service. Uh, so it, its origins uh, were in uh, uh, providing services to uh, to the men and women who had returned from service in Vietnam, uh, and it's since broadened now to include um, servicemen and women from. Uh, you know, from a number of uh, recent uh, uh, conflicts and, and wars, including in the Middle East and and, uh, and actions in the in the Pacific and and so on. So, so I, I continue doing that work uh, to this day, and and I continue seeing uh, seeing veterans, uh, some of, some of whom are now uh, are now uh, seventy plus years old, and and were uh, were in Vietnam when I was a child, uh, and others of them. Uh, younger than me and have uh, have been in the military uh, much more recently and and you know deployed to places like uh, 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 Iraq and Afghanistan and and so on um, so that that work that work came second and then somewhere in the mix there, I also started uh, doing some work that I actually found very um, very rewarding and that was um, ongoing, uh, kind of semi semi prevention work. It was it was called um, it was called uh, uh, we called them well checks, uh, and it was with a particular part of the police uh, service. In fact, the crash investigation unit. So that that um, that um, that team that used to go out and attend serious and often fatal um, motor vehicle accidents, uh, and uh, the police force at the time put in a, a program of. Uh, regularly checking in with these people once every three months, just to uh, to monitor their mental health and well-being, and to provide uh, early intervention uh, if necessary. And that, that was a really great uh, that was a really great service because it, it meant that for me at least it represented that that shift from um, from providing treatment, even if it's even if it's uh, fairly immediate treatment, to starting to ask the question what what can we do to keep you healthy. Um, rather than wait until you've suffered some major um, major insult uh, psychologically.
0: So with such a history in mental health with the tactical community, because I mean, obviously, a lot of the good counselors that we're finding now are somewhat new to taking care of our professions. What have you seen... Um, as far as a trend, like were there certain myths that have finally been dispelled, or, or treatments that were frowned upon that are working well now?
1: Well oh, yeah, good question, James. So, so when, it, so I, I would say broadly, um, the shift that I've seen is a shift to recognise the value of prevention. Um, so we've 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 gone from um, we've gone from being able to recognize when someone is severely impacted and uh, and you know jump in and, and provide some treatment there uh, then we we got to recognizing the value of early intervention um, so looking for those um, if you like early warning signs that, that someone might be struggling uh, and now you know there's a lot of work now focused on uh, now focused on uh, on prevention and the, the other thing that I would add here too is that there's nothing um, there's nothing particularly new about the things that we're, we're dealing with right now. So my, my own grandfather, my, my mother's father, uh, was a military veteran. Uh, he served in World War I uh, in uh, northern Africa uh, and was, uh, was uh, wounded uh, twice, I think, and, uh, and hospitalised, returned to the front uh, and was, uh, was overseas for four years so he his his history is that uh he emigrated from Ireland as a young man from Dublin in particular uh came out here to Sydney uh when i think he was um i think he was uh, 18 or 19 years old more or less arrived in Sydney at the outbreak of World War 1 signed up and uh and was deployed straight to uh straight to Africa but i can remember my mum as a child i can remember my mum talking about her father Having shell shock, uh, and in particular describing walking down uh, the city streets with him in, in the middle of Sydney as a child, um, and this this would have been this would have been around around the time now of the Second World War, so the the, uh, the very early nineteen forties, walking down the street with him in Sydney and seeing him uh, suddenly freeze. And then lean himself up against a, a wall of a building, um, and starting to sweat and shake. And of course, now we now we would we would instantly recognise that as someone in the midst of a panic attack, uh, and a panic attack that's most likely uh, related to PTSD. Um, but back then, uh, you know, we were much slower to recognise those things. So, so one of the one of the great things I think has been this this move to to really embed the value of, of prevention. And we, we're now starting to see a lot more services focused on uh, on preventing rather than you know, treating late-stage um, mental illness,
0: um,
1: which is a
0: great thing. Absolutely. Well, I mean, a very pertinent parallel is the COVID thing that we're going through at the moment. You know, it's a very reactive thing that we're seeing rather than focusing on on the pillars of health that could prevent it.
1: Yeah, that's 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 exactly right, James. And I and I love that phrase you just used, the, the pillars of health, because it um, it evokes for us that, that idea of uh, of foundations. You know, the, the things on which we can build uh, build good health. Um, and um, you know, we we um, we need we need to be careful uh, not to become um, you know uh, polyannerish about this, and and to say, well, if you just if you just uh, you know, sleep well and eat well and exercise well, you'll be absolutely fine because we know that's not the case. However, we do simultaneously know that people whose underlying health is very, very good, um, on the whole, tend to be much less impacted by this. Of course, there are exceptions, um, and we, we periodically uh, read about those or hear about those in the news media. But um, but on the whole, we know that people whose underlying health is is very good. Uh, tend to be less uh, less impacted, and conversely, we know that people with underlying uh, health conditions, for example, uh, diabetes, obesity, and so on, tend to not do so well uh, in all of this. And that's true, I guess, of lots of lots of uh, lots of different uh, lots of different situations that that uh, that we come across in life. That that when we look after underlying health well. And, and work to maintain good health, we generally manage lots of things in life um, uh, with less or with fewer challenges than if our underlying health is not not so great.
0: Absolutely. Well, then turning that back towards mental health then. So just kind of lead me through some of the areas of prevention, you know, what they look like and the, effect, the efficiency that you've seen.
1: Yeah. So some of the, um, the, oh, look, there's so many James we've lost. (laughs) Um, so I, I, um, the things the things that i'm particularly taken with uh, at the moment and have been for the last few years are developments in the field of positive psychology so the the, the story of positive psychology itself is a fascinating one so when when i studied uh, to become a psychologist which was in the the um, early to mid 1990s um, psychology was very much steeped in uh, steeped in i'm going to say psychiatry so we were still very although we had we had a focus on things like organisational psychology and social psychology, so we'd started to uh, started to look at some of the more social dimensions of um, of people's mental well being. You know, we were still I, I, I took I took subjects at university um, which were called abnormal psychology, and so we were looking at how we deal with things that are not functioning correctly in in um, in someone's psyche or or in someone's mental health and well-being it was only in the very uh, late 1990s that professor martin seligman who is now widely acknowledged as the the father of modern positive psychology started asking this question uh, rhetorically uh, initially along the lines of what why are we so why are we so focused on what doesn't work, why don't we have a psychology of what it means to thrive and flourish as human beings? And, and it was that one question that really uh, led and kicked off this this whole journey to investigate uh, what it means to thrive and flourish as a human being. And that gave birth to the the uh, the field that we would now call positive psychology. Um, Seligman himself was uh, was a former president of the American Psychological Association too, and I think you know in years to come we will look back and and really value his his legacy and 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 the legacy of many of his colleagues as well. So. Uh, So that whole field of positive psychology really developed after my training, but I have become very, very, uh, very, very focused on it. And we're we're starting to see now some really great research about uh, the benefits of some particular things um, and and surprisingly everyday things. So, for example, the mental health benefits of expressing gratitude, for example, the mental health benefits of uh, displaying kindness to other people, um, all, all, those, <laughs> all those things your mother and your grandmother um, told you to do when you were, when you were little, um, we're now realising actually play a really important role in maintaining good mental health. Uh, and, so, and there's a whole there's a whole suite of things uh, from the field of positive psychology um, that that make a difference here. So, for example, uh, activities like um, simply focusing on on breathing um, and, and and taking conscious control of breathing, uh, taking taking the time to get out and be in nature. Uh, recognizing recognizing the, the value of uh, discerning a, 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 a sense of purpose or meaning in your life and and undertaking activities which feed and nourish that that sense of uh, that sense of vision and purpose um, the, these are the activities that we we now know uh, really lead to people being able to maintain uh, good, robust mental health, and significantly also, they can they can form a basis for uh, for treatment as well. So we can we can use these same, same activities to support people to uh, to begin recovering uh, um, better mental health and, and better psychological functioning.
0: I just finished watching an amazing documentary today. It was called The Social Dilemma, and it was about the influence of social media and also, you know, the algorithms behind Google and YouTube and some of these other things. And when you hit on gratitude and kindness, to me, like you said, that, that's a, that's a common sense core value that a lot of us were raised on. Ironically, a lot of which are taught in religions. However, you look at society or at least the way society is being painted at the moment, especially here in the US. And I think that that is you know, definitely one of the issues that we're seeing is you, you see a kind of a, an abandonment of gratitude in, in the, the, the painting of, well, I need more. I, my house is not big enough. My car is not flashy enough. My watch isn't shiny enough. And then the same with the kindness. You have this great tool, which social media can be a very positive tool. But then you see this trolling and this cyberbullying and, you know, um, all these other elements too. So what has been your observation, I mean, this is kind of a tangent at the moment, uh, of, of those two core values and what you're seeing in modern society at the moment?
1: I, yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's,
0: a, it's an interesting
1: question, James. And I'm always, he- always hesitant um, because p- part of me, I, I can remember as a 20-year-old. Hearing my parents, you know, talk about when they were young people and, you know, starting to think, oh, yeah, but you're, you're just kind of, uh, you're just, you know, dreaming up the good old days and, and, and wishing for what used to be that you feel like is no longer here anymore. So. <laughs> And I, I sometimes say that to my two sons, who are who are now in their early to mid twenties, um, that that I that I hope I'm not doing that, and, and I really sincerely hope I'm not doing that when I talk about things like like gratitude and 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 appreciation and kindness. But I do feel like I do feel like there is less of it in the world than there was 25 years ago. Um, I, I do, I do have that sense, and I, I, I don't think I could, I don't think I could articulate it any more, um, any more specifically than that. Other than to say, well, it just feels like things have shifted to me, and it, and it feels like we need to, feels like we need to reclaim some of this. Um, and, and one of the things that I do in my own life is. Uh, have have a personal commitment to those things. So, so I personally go through my life every day, um, literally counting my blessings. I, I, I literally uh, think every day, what am I thankful for today? In fact, um, my wife and I have a little ritual at the end of the day when uh, I'm during these COVID times. I'm I'm working uh, entirely from home. She still works. Uh, nearby in a, in a local office, which, which typically has only her in it. Um, but she comes home at the end of the day and, uh, and we kick off a conversation with each other about what, what were your little wins today? What, what were those little things that you can look back on the day and, and say you were thankful for? Um, I, I make a point of expressing uh, appreciation and gratitude and thanks Uh, to everyone that i come into contact with whether that's the whether that's the cashier at the fruit and vegetable store the barista at the at the cafe um the the mail deliverer who who often takes the time to bring my mail directly to the door rather than uh, rather than just drop it in the box um anyone at all um i really i really make a point of trying to to make those part of my own uh daily life um and you know i i uh, of course if i'm if I'm working with uh, someone I tend to embed those ideas as well in the work that I might do with someone i d- I don't think it's too late James I don't think it's too late to turn this around um, but but I do think that I do think there's been a, a shift or a slide away from some of this
0: yeah no I agree and the thing is I see so much compassion and kindness come across my social media I'm just you know I, I guess Facebook and Instagram finally got it. Like, I don't want to see your negative shit. <laughs> so just send yeah. me, send me good stuff. So, I and mean, that's what happens, you know, and, yeah. and I'm very, very lucky. My little echo chamber is, has become very positive and I share a lot of the stuff that, that I see, but there is a yearning for that. People, people like seeing goodness and kindness, you know, genuine, not the, let, here's me filming myself, giving a homeless person $5, but the real genuine, you know, acts of kindness. Um, and it's, and sadly, we're we're being fed. There's no question, whether you're left or right in this country, our media here is being pumped with things to cause people to react. So understanding how fortunate, understanding that whether it's Australia or the UK or America, that your beautiful country is not. The ding dong that you've got sitting in your, you know, House of Parliament or White House or whatever it is, it's the people in your community and it's the the rolling hills and the trees and and the you know the the, the nature. So I think it's 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 a, a resetting. Like we have to remember, like you said, we are so lucky. There's people in Syria right now that are homeless because their house was destroyed, maybe with some of their family in it. We woke up in in the countries that we live in. Right off the bat you're incredibly lucky. As soon as you open your eyes you should be saying thank you and then that calibrates everything from there on. And the reason why I'm kind of focusing on this is I truly believe that is one of the underlying factors for a lot of the mental ill health that we see is the loss of gratitude and compassion and kindness within our, you know, daily not even routine daily existence.
1: I think I think that's right James and and I heard you use a really um A really telling and quite accurate phrase just a moment ago when you talked about echo chamber Uh, and and of course that that's exactly what uh that's exactly what social media uh does but it's also it's also to some extent what our network of of relationships do i mean we, we we tend to associate with people who you know uh echo and mirror and um reflect our own underlying sense of of value and so on. And we will naturally tend to distance from people who overtly don't do that. So, so human beings <laughs> are inclined anyway to, to set up in their own little uh, echo chambers. Social media certainly reinforces that. But I think what happens is that um, those echo chambers uh, can be um, very, very negative And we end up hearing all day um, problems, 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 anger, 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 angst, angst, angst. Um, and it just becomes an overwhelming kind of, um, kind of influence in our lives. I know that my, my wife and I periodically have conversations where we say, you know what? I, I'm just not even going to look at the news today. Um, it, it's just, uh, be, be, because, you know, I, I know that if I, I know that if I open a newspaper, if I if I know that I jump online and, and read some headlines, uh, uh, it, it'll be the, it'll be the same stuff I, I read yesterday. You know, it'll be someone someone railing against this, or someone angry about that, or or someone feeling, you know, annoyed that this didn't happen or that didn't happen, or someone who's absolutely certain that they're entitled to this and they didn't get it, and and um, and and to live constantly in that oh, my goodness, it's just, uh, that's tiring. That's really, really draining, and it takes it takes a toll. And sometimes we need to just put that, in, in fact, a lot of the time, we need to put that aside and, you know, walk into the forest, um, walk into the park, look, look into the middle distance. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate at the moment. It's spring. Spring's just starting over here, so the weather's starting to warm up. Um, all my citrus trees are starting to blossom, um, I, I just planted a whole lot of uh, vegetable and herb seeds They're just starting to sprout When we walk in the national park here uh, A lot of the native flowers are, uh, are in bloom at the moment um, and, and, and taking the time to do those things uh, Gives you a very, very different perspective Of the world you live in um, Compared with some of the other things That we characteristically and commonly do every day
0: absolutely we're just expanding on that a little bit i want to get into the kind of the first responder specific area in a moment but while we're on the topic of nature that's something that comes up a lot with therapies that people have been successful with whether it's canine equine you know diving whatever it is mud runs um but then it's also one of my closing questions is what do you do decompress and and so often people say i go to the beach i surf i i hike a camp. So, what have you seen as far as the actual healing element of nature with people who are being challenged with some sort of, um, you know, post-traumatic stress?
1: A- a- anecdotally, James, I, you know, I've seen it have a very, um, a very powerful impact. Um, a- and I know, for me in my life, even though uh, you know, I, I'm uh, my underlying mental health is. Is uh, is good, and and I've I've not personally had to struggle with with PTSD. I know that just being in nature, or in one of those uh, one of those environments that you spoke about, being at the beach or something like that, I know that does wonders for my my perspective, and and I've seen it do similarly for people who are struggling. Several several years ago, I um, I developed and and trademarked a particular approach to. Um, to working with people, which I called Trail Talk. And it actually <laughs> coincidentally came out of uh, the idea came to me from a conversation that we had as a family walking on the beach one day. So the beach that's less than 10 minutes from, from here, we were walking with our dog uh, along the beach. And my, my younger son, who I think was then, you know, maybe 13 at the time, uh, as we were walking along uh, one Sunday afternoon, just said, Isn't it funny? How when you start walking, you start talking, and I went away and I thought about that, and I thought, yeah, he's exactly right. That's what happens, isn't it? You know, it, it, it's almost like it's almost like our mouths are connected to our feet. Um, the moment we start walking with someone, we just fall into this natural rhythm of talking, and it's not necessarily it's not problem solving talking, it's not it's not world changing talking, but it's just that um, incidental. Exchange of ideas, sometimes dreams, um, sometimes hopes, sometimes plans—that forms the oil, uh, you know, the, in the engine of relationships, uh, and and keeps things just rolling over smoothly. So, so from that, I developed a, a particular idea of uh, um, walking with people in in natural settings. So, for example, national parks or or you know boardwalks that are. Um, sometimes have a shared cycleway as well uh, around uh, around bodies of water, uh, walking with them, and, and and using that as the vehicle for then engaging in uh, conversations that might make a difference to them. And in particular, uh, I get I get focused on. What, what I call appreciative conversations, which comes comes from the comes from the field of appreciative inquiry, appreciative inquiry. Uh, so in, instead of having a, a conversation that starts with, so what's the problem here? What's going wrong? How long has it been going wrong for? Uh, what are the signs that it's going wrong? What do we need to do to fix it? We have a conversation instead that starts, what's the best of what we have right now? What are, what are our successes? What are our strengths? Um, what could be from where we are right now? Let's cast our minds into the future. What are the possibilities that exist from where we are? And that is a totally different conversation to uh, to have. And that's the sort of conversation that that really leads people to develop a sense of of hope. That things can be different, and and in my um, in my personal experience uh, and professional experience, um, that's the sort of conversation that I love to have with um, with uh, war veterans, with first responders, because it's an antidote to. Um, to the way that they've often become accustomed to thinking. It's an antidote to many of the conversations that they frequently have. The context for a lot of first responders and and war veterans is that they're in a cycle of of professional appointments. They're going from one professional to another to another, whether that's a mental health professional or, uh, um, you know, typically we see uh, people with uh, physical injuries alongside um, poor mental health you know, so they're they're going they're going to this specialist and that specialist and the psychiatrist and the psychologist and the vocational person and so on. And w- what that means for them in their day to day day to day lives is that they just they live in this world of of um, feeling like they're managing one problem, then another problem, then another problem, and then another one. Uh, and so one of one of my um, one of my uh, goals if you like is to is to co-create a different conversation with people uh, to to create a conversation that's focused on that, that that recognizes where they are it's not not a conversation that 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 downplays or ignores the significance of 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 uh, of what they've experienced but a but a conversation that focuses on what what do we have here what what's the best of that um, what's your best strength? What's your best success? Um, what, um, what, what, gives you, what gives you a sense of purpose? What adds meaning for you? What, what could be from this point? And when we have that conversation, uh, 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 just a whole different world opens up to people
0: yeah it's amazing i mean i've i've had those experiences myself i did um a Spartan race not too long ago with Operation enduring Warrior and got to to walk some of the race because we had um amputees coming with us and had amazing conversations and were talking and laughing and I remember in the back of a fire station doing laps with one of my uh my crew members you know and we would talk for hours this guy you know was was a heavier heavier gentleman and wanted to to get back into the the shape he was when he was younger. And, you know, normally wasn't a big fan of exercise and we'd end up walking for like an hour. I don't know how many miles we ended up covering, but, um, then he wanted to put a pack on his back and do the same thing. So, and what disconnected the, the pain, the, you know, the, the, um, the grind of, of what would normally be seen as a workout was that, that human connection. So I can absolutely relate to what you're talking about. Yeah. And that's a, that's
1: a lovely example, James, of, of the power of that, um, of, of that human connection. And of course, of course, at the end of the day, um, certainly the, the, I mean, the psychological knowledge that I have accrued over all those years is valuable. Um, but it's not the whole story. Uh, and, um, for that matter, um, a, a particular, a particular diet, a particular sleep pattern, a particular exercise regime, they're all important, but they're not the whole story. Um, and the way that we, we activate or operationalize those things is through human to human relationship and um, engaging with people in a way that says, um, I, I want to understand you, and I want to understand what's going to work for you, much like you did with that colleague you just mentioned. Um, you know, a, a typical problem-focused uh, solution to that would be to prescribe a particular diet to lose weight or, or prescribe an exercise regime. But instead, what happened? Well, you just started doing things that grew naturally from the circumstance. And then from that, he said, you know what? Throw a pack on the back and and set an extra challenge. Uh, And that's how we see, um, that's how we see um, long-term sustainable change. And that's how we see people starting to move back towards, um, towards better um, physical and, and mental and spiritual and, and social health in their lives.
0: Absolutely, well you touched on sleep and you know that's one of the the main topics that i I really try and drive home because I mean I was only exposed to sleep medicine myself probably six years ago now um, what is your observation of sleep deprivation and mental health?
1: great question and I'll say right now, James that you're speaking with someone who um, probably as as little as six years ago used to um used to proudly strut around saying you know what you can sleep when you're dead um and uh, the irony of that, of course, is that that day may may come much sooner than you expect if you uh, if you don't get uh, don't get proper sleep. So I so I used to I used to downplay the uh, the value of sleep and and uh, and I used to love the idea of just cramming as much as I possibly could into every single day, you know, wringing wringing out every drop of experience from every single day of my life. And I still I still aim to do that, uh, but I now recognise that sleep plays such an important uh, role, uh, and it plays plays an important role for me in waking up and feeling refreshed and energised enough to uh, to do the things that I need to do. And it also plays a role in uh, providing, if you like, the the extra buffering that we need to be able to manage the stresses of daily life. So, so the the, the way that I think it's helpful to understand the role of sleep. With respect to mental health, it is that is that it provides a it provides a cushion um, between stressful events and our our um, the 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 end of our limit to be able to to manage those things. So so if we if we are if we're well rested, if we're if we're getting that seven seven to nine hours of sleep a night, rough roughly eight hours getting roughly eight hours of sleep tonight. If it's restful sleep. Um, if we're being conscious of sleep hygiene, you know, um, making sure light um, is minimised, sound is minimised, you know, avoiding devices, um, substances too close to sleep and so on, um, then what we're, what we're effectively doing is creating a big buffer zone between stressful events and our capacity to manage them. It's a bit like having – it's a bit like the like shock absorbers uh, in, your, in your car or your truck. Um, and when we don't get enough sleep, that's like taking those shock absorbers out so that every single bump we go over is, is experienced as this kind of jarring shaking that goes right through us. Um, and that, that then predisposes us. To a fairly precipitous decline in mental health, when our when our day to day experience is one of being shaken and jarred by by uh, the stresses of daily life, then we're starting to walk very close to the the edge of um, starting to topple or stumble into declining mental health.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that's what I've I've witnessed. You know, you got you're talking before about. In these walks, talking about all the things that we have. Where are we now? And you look at, you know, many of these first responders specifically that we've lost. These are amazing fathers, you know, amazing husbands. Maybe, maybe not at that time. Maybe, you know, the marriage is falling apart, but you know, first responders, people that have committed to literally risk their lives for complete strangers. And yet in my opinion, The, the cumulative effects of the calls, it may be acute calls, it may be on, you know, the Vegas shooting, 9-11, whatever, but, um, the, the impact of sleep deprivation over years, decades even, um, you hear of the, the way that people describe that I've had on the show that literally had the gun in their mouth and it didn't go off, someone stopped them, whatever it was, was I felt like I was a burden to my family. So what's terrifying to me is a combination of those things, but almost like most importantly, the sleep deprivation changes the entire, you know, chemistry and and wiring of the brain to deceive the individual that they are a burden, that, that invisible hand that keeps you from jumping off a roof when you're, you know, when you're in in good mental health is now taken away. So I I mean, that's not even really a question, but, but the, the horrendous negative power of sleep deprivation and how it changes the way we actually think. I, I personally think it's behind a lot of the, the first responder suicides that we've seen.
1: Yeah. And that's, and this is the, I mean, we're, we're now touching James on the, on the, the absolute tragedy that, that, that lies at the the heart of this. Um, uh, and what, <laughs> one of the, um, um, you know, one one of the the, the phrases that um, that uh, First in Wellness uh, uses, or not, not a phrase, but one of the ideas that First in Wellness uses, is the idea that um, you know, f- fighting a fire, for example, is now no longer the most dangerous part of the job. It, it used to be. Um, that used to be the most dangerous thing you would do. Um, but but now some of those dangers are the are the ones that just become embedded in. Daily lives afterwards, when we don't, um, when we don't um, manage things like sleep, like exercise, like diet, like social connection, like that echo chamber um, in our own lives, and we we really need to consciously um, push towards the positive uh, in doing those things, uh, because if we don't, when mean the. the the cost to the cost to individuals and to um, to families is just horrendous. One of the uh, I'm sure lots of your listeners have had this experience. Um, um, I've been twice to uh, to New York in the last few years, and uh, and on, and on both occasions, um, being to Ground Zero and and walked around um, the memorials, and just taken some time to. Um, just, just just read names on those uh, on those plaques um, and last time I was there which was in 2017 I think one of the one of the things that really struck me was that when we look at those names um, we're also we're also thinking about all the people who were connected to that person um, you know um, a wife a husband, children parents brothers sisters work colleagues, um, you know, university colleagues, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so the the, the ripples, the, the ripples that go through a community when even a single person um, uh, suicides or or um, or has a has a marked decline in their mental health. I mean they're they're almost they're almost immeasurable and it's it's um, I mean it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a um, it, it, it's it's a it's a tragedy that that kind of happens right in front of us um, all the time and and sometimes we're so slow to actually recognize the the deep tragedy of this
0: yeah absolutely and that's that's one of the reasons why you know I, I talk about this a huge amount but why the the work week especially here in in the states but wherever in, in the UK and Australia and you know wherever people are listening to this from if you're going to ask your men and women to stay up 24 hours or, or 12 hours through the night. We've got to understand that that's different than a nine to five office job. That you have to create a work week that allows these people to recover. A so they can acutely be aware and, and function properly. But B also to keep your workforce healthy. 10, 20, 30 years into their career.
1: That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. We want we want. But because we know that we know that there's both short, medium, and long term uh, long term effects here. So. Having that uh, having that focus um, across all those uh, uh, across all those kind of um, uh, times is is uh, is really important here.
0: Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about first and wellness, so you're working with Danielle Cook and Mike Mike Salemi, who've both been on the show. Um, and and I would love to get your um, Kind of philosophy on the psychological component, especially to areas like obesity. I've had a few people now on, a couple of whom have t- have spoken about food being viewed as an addiction, the same way as social media and you know and, and narcotics and alcohol. So, what is your um, philosophy on the psychology of helping someone? steer themselves towards wellness and then also what's your kind of been your observations of the mental health side of a lot of the obesity epidemic that we have as well
1: yeah okay great great questions james so the so um uh, first first of all i'm i'm going to say um you know i'm i'm uh, enormously appreciative to uh, to be part of uh, to be part of First in Wellness uh, D- Danny and uh, Danielle and I um, met re- really uh, uh, only at the start of this year and um we uh, we sort of s- struck up a um struck up a lovely friendship with each other uh, straight away and um when Danielle asked me whether I'd be interested in in being part of First in Wellness I um well I I I jumped at the opportunity because um because it involves being able to do some of the things that I'm really, really very passionate about doing, which are um, c- certainly supporting people to recover, but also um, preventing the onset of uh, declining physical and mental health. And, and, and we know this is possible. I mean, we, we know we can do this. We've, we've got very good science and data that tells us we can do things to, to keep populations of people functioning well. Um, we need to pay attention to that science, of course, and, and to follow what the science tells us. But it is, but it is possible. So, um, the, I guess the, in terms of that that journey uh, back to wellness or or maintaining wellness, the the first observation I would make is that every single journey is unique, uh, and so we can certainly have guiding principles that that support us. So. For example, we know we know what the, the general human requirements are for sleep. Uh, we know what the general human requirements are for exercise and activity and for diet and so on. Within that, though, um, every individual journey is uh, is a unique one, and people will people will find that the behaviours that they can sustain are the behaviours that fit best with their with their own values and and meaning and and sense of purpose, and those things become the motivators. Um, people people are almost never motivated long term by external factors or or external motivators. Um, you, for example, you know um, I, I won't put you on the spot by asking uh, asking you this james, but um, but perhaps for for listeners, um, ask yourself the question, do you routinely speed? When you're driving? Do you routinely drive, you know, maybe 25, 30 miles an hour over the speed limit? And if you answer to yourself no, then the most likely reason for that is because that's inconsistent with your values, Um, because you value ideas like safety and respect for other drivers and, and, you know, the rule of law and so on. If, on the other hand, I I park a state trooper um, on the side of the road, and you're, and you're speeding, you are most likely to, uh, to jump on the brakes once you see that car there and slow right down. But what are you most likely to do 500 yards down the road?
0: Speed back up. Oh.
1: That's exactly right because that external motivator has now gone and there's no particular reason to keep that behaviour going. Uh, And so in the same way, um, we're motivated most by what's inside us, not what's outside us. And so one of the really um, vital things, I think, in helping people to, um, to both maintain their health and wellness but also recover it is to support them to... Uh, to connect with their own sense of what's, what's meaningful for me, what's purposeful here for me, what, what's my vision for my life five years from now, what, what do I see myself doing, um, what, what will my successes and strengths be in five years? Um, and, and one of my favourite questions to start, at, um, start this conversation is, when you are no longer here, what do you want people to say about you? What do you want? What do you want people's memory of you to be? And James, no one in my—I'm um, I'm fifty-three years old. I've, I've been doing this work for, of one sort or another, for you know more than twenty-five years. When I ask that question, um, no one has ever said. Or do you know what? When I'm no longer here, I want people to remember me as a grumpy, curmudgeonly um, old man who went through his life very, very unhappy. No one says that. Everyone says, well, I want to be remembered as generous and, and kind and and you know thoughtful and someone who enjoyed a laugh and so on. And so we, when we can when we can cultivate that and when we can support people to connect with those desires, now they have something to aim for, something to move towards, rather than something to move away from. And I, I think I think that sits at the at the heart of um, of supporting people to um, to both maintain and regain good mental health.
0: Yeah, I can see a definitely a parallel even in the the CrossFit gym where I coach. There, you know, people may think they want to quote unquote look good. You know, I want a six pack. I want you know whatever. But you know, the reality is when I see someone do their first pull up, or I mean, it doesn't have to be anything crazy as far as weight, but let's say a handstand for the first time or push a sled all the way around the building. That is, you know, it is an immediate reward, but it's also a sense of achievement versus I want to look good it isn't even a tangible goal. I have abs. It doesn't get me anywhere. I tell you that right now. So <laughs> it's, once you get there, it, it doesn't mean doesn't mean a whole lot of anything. However, I myself, I just did a blooming muscle-up, which is one of my nemesis in the gym, And I'd just fallen off the wagon, couldn't get up and I got up the other day. Now, as someone's done it for 14 years, that alone was huge. I don't care what I look like in the mirror, but that was an ability thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think that and and I think those are the internal versus the external. The external is physically outside your body looking in versus what can this amazing gift that you were born in, what is it capable of and what are you able to, to bring it back to after maybe falling off the fitness wagon for a while?
1: yeah and that 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 also leads into one of my favorite conversations to have which is which is um the difference between the whats and the why's and so often in in health and wellness um people conflate those two they they identify uh, they identify a reason for doing something but what they've actually identified is a what um you know what um what, why is losing weight important to you well i you know i i, I want to have abs or um, you know, I want to weigh uh, I want to weigh 150 pounds, 180 pounds, or something like that. Well, that that's a what? But there's a deeper why there that we haven't got to yet. Why why is that important to you? Why does that matter to you? Ah, because that would mean that uh, that would mean that I feel strong. That would that that would mean that um, you know I'm able to do these things in my life that that really matter to me. Now we're starting to get towards the why. Um, and that, that's the point I think that we, that we always need to get to in, in health and well-being, um, to get to that, that um, what I often describe as, as the why behind the why, behind the why, behind the why, behind the why. Um, so going down all those layers till we, till we get to some really deep sense of um, what's going to motivate you here. And that's a, in, in relation to your other question about um, in particular mental health and and obesity. Um, so my my experience is that that's a that's a very very um, very very complex um, uh, relationship um, between the two. Um, I, I tend I tend not to view food um, in addiction terms. I do view it in. Uh, habit terms, and if you like, um, depending on your particular diet, um, bad habit terms. Um, so human, human beings are, uh, Habit-forming creatures, and we need to be. That's a that's a useful survival mechanism. Uh, If we if we had to consciously process every single thing that we did, not only would that be extraordinarily time-consuming, but we also wouldn't have any resources left to look around us for threats and dangers. Uh, So, you know, we likely wouldn't survive long if we had to do that. And and if you want evidence that we're we're habit um, habit habit-forming creatures, um, I'll bet you a thousand bucks right now that when you get home every day. The first five things you do are the same first five things you do, regardless of where you've been. You'll probably put your keys in a particular location. You'll probably um, call out to the dog if you have a dog or the cat. If you have a cat, you'll open a particular window, a particular door. You'll go to the fridge for a drink, the bathroom, whatever it may be. Your five things are different from my five thing, my five things and so on. But you will go through that same little routine most days when you get home. When you get in your car, you don't sit there and think, right, clutch in, foot on gas, key in ignition, turn two clicks, uh, hand on handbrake, you know, blah, blah, blah. You just, in, in one smooth movement, you, you get into the car and while you're pulling your seatbelt, uh, your safety belt with one hand, you're inserting the key ignition into the ignition with the other, you're putting your foot on the clutch, you're looking over your shoulder. With your spare hand now that's just put the safety belt in, you're starting to turn on your car stereo, you're probably having a conversation next with the person next to you, all in one go. Why? Because you've automated it. Um, You've pushed that down to such a low level that you don't need to consciously process it. That That is an extraordinarily valuable capacity to have. However, it has a shadow side. And the shadow side is that we will tend to do that with most things, including things like diet. And so for many of us, our diets and for that matter, our sleeping patterns and for that matter, our exercise and activity patterns and for that matter, the echo chamber that we set up with social media and for that matter, the social relationships that we have will tend to go unexamined. Um, we'll tend to just stay in that same little routine day after day after day without stopping, stepping back, examining and looking at that and asking the question, what's what's going on here? Um, what are my opportunities to do something different here? And it's only when we take that time to, to recognise that um, that we've formed habits, some of them helpful, some of them not so helpful in the context, and to recognise that we can actually exert some control over those. We can redirect those habits, we can do different things, that we can start then to make inroads into some of the challenge that, challenges that we have, uh, such as uh, overweight and obesity. Overweight and obesity, of course, are made all the more complex by the by the society uh, in which we currently live, so um, it's ridiculously easy to get ridiculously bad food um, in pretty much any location. Um, uh, access um, access to fresh food. is very, very challenging in some urban areas. So I know that there are some urban areas, um, particularly in the US, where, um, where you might need to travel a number of miles before you can actually access any fresh food whatsoever, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, fresh grains, and so on. All the food that's immediately accessible is, is highly processed, um, and so on. So, so there's certainly some structural challenges there um, that we need to um, we need to get around. But we also need to recognise that many of us are, are tied up in habitual uh, habitual acts, acts and actions uh, to do with uh, to do with eating um, that we need to need to challenge and uh, look at the opportunity to to change.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's something that I become aware of myself is, is like you said, the routine, the routine can be healthy or it can be unhealthy. And, and I'm just now, before we start recording, I'm making myself get back into foundation training, which is like a back health, um, almost mobility practice, movement practice, um, that I know works so well. But the moment it gets me out of stiffness and pain I fall off the wagon you know instead of staying on it and, and maintaining it so it's it's so easy I think for us when we get to where we think we need to be to then discontinue those healthier ones so the power of routine I think is 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 you know completely understated
1: and worth worth also recognizing James and I'm look I'm similarly getting into uh to Mike's uh, kettlebell r- routine at the moment Mike Sulemin's kettlebell routine um and it it's worth it's worth noting that that sometimes we can, we, can, we can lose habits or our, our habits can drop off because of a change in circumstance. Um, and so, for example, if you're uh, on a day shift uh, in, in your work or if you're on a particular roster, you may well have a, a routine built around that, which means eating at this time, going to the gym or working out at that time uh, and so on. When you suddenly then go to a night shift – uh, unless unless you have consciously thought it through and consciously planned it that routine goes out the window and it can be a challenge to to get that back and there can be lots of circumstances in our lives that that lead to that i had um i had uh, so I, I was i was in a great routine of uh of uh, physical and uh, physical activity and and gym towards the end of last year, um, sensational routine. I had the misfortune last year of um, suffering a spontaneously detached retina in my left eye. Really, I was very fortunate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, very fortunate that I um, I um, uh, stumbled across uh, in the hospital a, an absolutely superb ophthalmologist uh, to whom. I am quite literally eternally grateful, uh, grateful because he, he literally saved my sight. So um, had I not seen him at that time, um, I would have lost the sight in my left eye. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. that. That sort of threw me out of my physical activity routine for um, a number of months last year. Um, but I did, get, I did get back into it around November, December. I was having a great time. I was going to the gym I was doing spin classes doing my my favorite activity which is which is boxing um I was starting to do some some things that I wouldn't uh wouldn't normally do um it, w- with respect to um to activity and exercise having a great time and then two things happened um the the, <laughs> the first one was that I had the misfortune of suffering the identical event in my right eye in February this year. So I got a detached retina in my right eye. Um, uh, Very fortunate to have the same ophthalmologist who did the same sterling job of preserving my vision. But shortly after that, as as I was in the the surgical recovery period from that, COVID hit and that meant that gyms were shut. Um, You know, my my usual routine went out the window and it took me um, an embarrassing number of months um, and, and that's embarrassing for me um, to, to get back into that routine. You know, me, the person who, who recognises uh, how habitual our lives are, me, the person who knows the importance of examining routines. Um, so it took me a, a long time to recover that, uh, recover that routine. And it really, really drove home to me, James, the importance of um, constantly taking some time just to step back from ourselves and examine what's going on, taking the time to press pause and ask that question. How are things going here? What's working well? Um, what, what could I improve here? What could I do more of? Uh, and so on. And as a result of me doing that, of course, it's, it now means that I've started to, uh, started to get back into some, uh, some, uh, some m- more intense uh, physical activity and, and stretching as well, which I'm really benefiting from.
0: Well, I mean that's crazy. When when I think of detached retinas, I always think of MMA. You know, the, a lot of the combat sports. Was it related to your boxing? Yeah. No,
1: no, no, it was it was entirely unrelated, um, completely spontaneous. Um, uh, and um, the, the my my ophthalmologist um, believes that most likely, um, he, he said the he said the the location and the shape of the tear in the retina of each eye was was practically a mirror image and he said it's all he said to me his explanation was that it was it was almost like as your eyes were forming there was a structural fault there which then you know um as as the eyes kind con- of as the cells split um it becomes sort of replicated in uh in each eye and he basically said this this for you this was always going to happen um, it wasn't a matter of if it was a matter of when so um yeah yeah but um look I've, I've, got, I've got no complaints. I live in a country with a, uh, with a fantastic healthcare system. Um, I, I had the good fortune to come across um, a person whom I consider to be probably, you know, um, if not the best, then one of the best ophthalmologists uh, in the country. And, uh, you know, my, my vision is uh, entirely intact. So, uh, yeah, very, very fortunate.
0: That's amazing. Well, I want to transition to to wellness coaching. I know you do that through uh, First in Wellness, and you have Well Coaches Australia as well. So, for people listening, tell me about the the you know the the company that you have, and then also you know how that ties in. What what that kind of coaching will, um, yeah, the effects of that kind of coaching on someone's ability to find the wellness they're looking for.
1: Yeah. So, so Well Coaches Australia uh, began. It, it began in a small way last year, and and began earnestly uh, this year. Well Coaches Australia is the um, Australian operation of. Well Coaches, which was established in the US twenty years ago. In fact, twenty years ago, this uh, this past January, uh, and Well Coaches is a school a school of coaching. We train um, we train medical and health professionals, and indeed anyone who who wants to learn the skills of cultivating and sustaining. Long-term behavioural change. Um, so, we um, in the in the courses we teach, uh, we integrate uh, um, theories of the, the science of human behaviour change, um, the science of of human needs. We integrate uh, theories of positive psychology, um, skills like motivational interviewing. Um, frameworks such as the trans-theoretical model of change, the the model that explains those stages of change that people can can go through, um, all the way from from not even considering the possibility of doing something different, all the way through to having made a substantial and sustained uh, behavioural change. So we integrate all that in in the courses and 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 teach people those skills and and have a have a certification pathway. Uh, which is which ultimately leads people to be uh, certified by the National Board for Health and Wellness Coaching, the NBHWc. So it's a it's a um, it's a terrific course that that not only. Uh, equips people with great professional skills. It also, in my experience, and, and I personally had this experience when I trained with well coaches. It also leads people to um, to have a personal transformation, uh, to 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 look at themselves in a different way and consider themselves in a different way. So, so that's that's the so my, my role over here is to is to build and develop the business of well coaches in Australia to build up the, the school in this part of the world Australia and New Zealand um, um, looking at the moment at um, at uh, doing some work in Asia um, a couple of little things uh, boiling away in um, in uh, Hong Kong and uh, yeah some other some other parts of of uh, of, of the world over here, so um, that, that's the that's the long term the long term plan to, to build up uh, build up well coaches uh, over here uh, and to continue that uh, that tradition started by well coaches in the U S twenty years ago. And, and that's that's coincidentally how the, the context for, for Danielle and and I meeting um, we we met through a uh, through a particular professional uh, uh, training course uh, offered by Well Coaches. Uh, so that um, that sparked our our connection. And in in my own day to day work, I use those I use those principles. Um, day in day out the, the principles of of not, not immediately getting bogged down in problem-solving conversations and, and particularly I'm going to say particularly with people who who um, are uh, managing overweight and obesity conditions and a lot of my work um, over here apart from apart from first responders and uh, military veterans is to work with people who are uh, having bariatric surgery, so weight weight loss surgery. And I, I see them pre-surgery and I often see them uh, post-surgery as well for follow-up support. And the story uh, that people managing overweight and obesity have is um, – is universal. And it's a story of feeling ashamed, of feeling embarrassed, of feeling humiliated by um, what they perceive as failed efforts to make any inroads into their weight. It's a story that's characterized by uh, feeling like they've tried every possible uh, intervention uh, and it hasn't, hasn't worked, whether it's this diet or that diet or this exercise plan or that one. Uh, and so by the time people are uh, having weight loss surgery, they're often defeated, they're deflated, and they're, they're expecting the worst. Um, they're expecting to have a professional say to them, you know, you really need to get a hold of this, otherwise such and such a bad thing is going to happen. What they're not expecting is someone to say to them, what's your vision for where you would like to be in five years time in relation to your health? What do you want to be able to do five years from now that you're not currently? What will that look like? Who else is involved? Who are the significant people in your life five years from now? What do those relationships look like? What are you doing with them? Um, paint, paint me that picture. Um, let's understand what this looks like. And so that conversation alone, the, the conversation about what could be, um, often sparks the beginning of something so different for those people uh, and allows them to capture again the hope that something can be different for them. And then once, once, we, once we spend time developing that vision uh, and understanding uh, the things that, that have meaning and value for that person, understanding something about the, the sense of purpose that they want to embed in their lives, um, then we can start working towards uh, setting some medium term goals and, and some, some shorter term behavioural goals. So to use some language that we used earlier, it's, it's starting at the why and moving back towards the what, um, um, and uh, and that consistently gets good results. Um, it gets good results. People people identify the changes that are significant to them, that matter to them, that uh, that they can accomplish in in their context and uh, the the changes that are relevant to them in their in their daily lives. One of the one of the um, traps, of course, of, of being a professional is that is that we we think we think the the more we practice, um, and I include myself in this, the more we practice, we we think we understand what really works. So you and I have talked about the gym. The gym happens to work for us um, for a whole host of reasons, but the gym is not something that works for everyone, and it presupposes. A bunch of things that that particular people may not have access to. It, it presupposes, for example, um, income to pay for that. It presupposes a level of literacy to be able to uh, to read the those 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 you know 10,000 word gym contracts that you sign your life away on. Um, um, and so, to simply say to someone, "Well, what you need to do is go to the gym and do this, this, and this." Um, ignores all those social and cultural uh, factors that are so important. Instead, having a conversation that, that says, "What what would what would increase fitness look like for you? Um, what what would you be doing if you were um, if you were feeling fitter and stronger? What activities have you already had success with? What works for you? Um, that sort of conversation leads us somewhere very very different."
0: Yeah, well, and you hit on the fact that you were coaching medical professionals, and I think that's something that we see a complete lack of in you know chronic disease management. Your average MD, and there's, again, not demonizing the profession, but the way that we have regressed is literally prescribing medication that will change the metrics on a physiological test. So oh, you have high blood pressure. We'll take these pills. Oh, look, your blood pressure's better now. Well, the person's you know. Put on 10 pounds since you saw them last, but their numbers are good. And I think this is saying, yeah, the, the gastric bypass is a perfect example. We, you know, we don't need chronic disease management. A CPAP is fantastic, but that shouldn't be for the rest of your life. It should be until you can start mitigating weight gain and, um, you know, getting deeper sleep so that you increase the musculature in the back of your throat and all these other elements that are causing sleep apnea. And so by. Adding more coaching and obviously that means that the infrastructure has to change where these doctors actually have more time with their patients and can still pay the bills. But that's how, you know, we're supposed to practice medicine. We're supposed to educate, supposed to inspire, find the root of the problems rather than, you know, five-minute visitation. Here's your pills. Off you go. See you in a week.
1: Mm. Mm, but that's exactly right, James, and, and we, you know, we, we still practice, uh, I mean, we, the, the biggest challenge in healthcare now, of course, in the 21st century is, uh, is chronic disease. So both, it, both in the US and Australia, the proportion of the population uh, who is overweight uh, and obese, so those two categories together, um, approaches 70% in each country. Um, and uh, we're still practicing medicine and healthcare as if we're dealing with acute, chronic, infectious disease. As it happens, uh, we are just at the moment in the world dealing with one of those. But nevertheless, um, that still accounts for uh, a far smaller um, indentation uh, in the health of the nation than does uh, than does chronic uh, chronic disease. So we, we're using we're using old ways of thinking about um, about treating disease, and still. We're, we're just not making, we're, we're not currently making the, the, the dents or the inroads that we need to be making into chronic disease to, to start seeing that turnaround. Um, why? Because we're using the same tool over and over um, and expecting a different result and it won't happen. We, we do need to, to, um, to, to re-envision, to think differently about how we go about healthcare and to think health um to think about health as as much broader than someone's uh, someone's blood sugars or their their blood pressure or their blood cholesterol level, but to think about that whole person, um, their physical health, their mental health, their spiritual health, their social health, uh, all of those things, uh, all of those things together, and understanding, and this is. This is, this is where I go all the way back to, to where we started this conversation about my, my, um, my very early uh, training and exposure. We go all the way back to those ideas of how systems operate with each other. The idea that we can't just, you you can't just sort of part off someone's, someone's diabetes and treat that as a, as a discrete condition. You, You can't just sort of, partial out someone's back pain and, and treat that as if it, it bears no relationship to anything else. Um, we have to understand the operation of these things together. We have to understand them in that systemic way. Um, and that that's one of the things that that uh, that health coaching aims to do, aims to support people to understand the connectedness of this. And, and indeed that's one of the things that that uh, that lifestyle medicine aims to do as well to to um, to embed the understanding that, that all those pillars that we talked about, um, you know, sleep, diet, activity, exercise, social support, stress management, um, substance minimization, and avoidance, they're all connected with each other. Uh, and they all um, simultaneously uh, influence and and reinforce each other, one way or the other.
0: Beautiful. Well, I think that's a great place to segue to some closing questions. But thank you for that perspective, because I mean that's that really illustrates the the power of wellness coaching, and, and it's helped make me understand it better too. So the first closing question that I love to ask is: there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today, or something completely different.
1: Oh well, wow. so a book that I'd like. Love- <laughs> so there. <laughs> um- let me think. Uh, so, th- th- there are two. Um, th- there's a book. There's a book actually written by um, by a colleague of mine um, uh, out here at uh, Avondale University College, uh, where with, where I'm uh, adjunct faculty as well. Um, the, the book's by um, Profe- Associate Professor Darren Morton, and it's called "Live More Happy." Um, so it's it, it's the ma- the main title is Live More, the subtitle is Happy, and it's it's a book that delves into the science really of lifestyle medicine and and the principles of of how we how we can create long lasting um, happiness and, I, and I'm not talking talking about the happiness that comes from um, you know eat, eating a bowl of your favourite ice cream or 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 um, you know the, the the happiness that that comes from you know. Um, scooting down a, a roller coaster at 80 miles an hour, but but the deep, lasting happiness that comes from connecting with things that are meaningful and and purposeful for us. So that that's that's one of my uh, that's one of my favourites uh, favourites um, at the moment. Um, I'm reading some I'm reading some great fiction too, but I'm I'm a I'm a crime fiction lover. But um, but you know crime fiction is one of those things that uh, you got to uh, you got to find what works for you there. So I, prob- I probably won't recommend <laughs> what I'm reading right now there, but um, uh, yeah. But li- look, live, live more happy. Terrific, uh, terrific little, um, terrific little book. Um, there's another great book that I came across relatively recently called "Designing Your Life," uh, and it's subtitled "How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life." Uh, and that's another terrific little book that um, that is written for uh, for everyday people like you and me. So it's a it's a book that's full of exercises and reflections and and things that get you thinking about. Um, Thinking about yourself and your life in that way that I talked about before, James, and you know, in terms of the importance of stepping back from our lives periodically and just examining it um, and asking questions about, you know, what is, what's going on here, what what am I, what's going really well for me, what can I build on and so on.
0: Brilliant. Well, and what about the same question but a, a movie and or documentary?
1: Oh, Wow. So, um, so um, our cinemas have been. Uh, I, I was a, uh, I was a frequent frequent moviegoer uh, last year, and in fact, one one of one of my uh, one of my secret pleasures in life is to go to the cinema by myself. Um, I love doing that, and I typically do it towards the end of a run of a run of a movie, um, and typically um, early to midweek. And um, my experience is often that I sit in the cinema alone. And I love that, um, but sadly cinemas have been shut uh, here for a long time. So I have not, I have not been to the movies for a long, long time, uh, and I can't, I can't even think of a film, I can't even think of a film that I've, I've, you know, watched on streaming TV uh, recently either. So I'm afraid I'm going <laughs> to, I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave you hanging with that one, John. That's all right, no um, problem. But a um a documentary. Um, so there's um there's a great a great documentary um, that I think has been. Uh, mm, no, I'm not going to say the platform because I'm I'm not entirely sure of the platform. But it's a documentary called Code Blue, uh, and it's the story of a particular um, medical practitioner. Who herself was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, uh, and it's the story of her journey um, back to good health despite that diagnosis. Um, code Code Blue, it's called, um, and uh, it's it's a documentary um, by one of the uh, the fellows of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Uh, well worth well worth hunting down and watching.
0: Beautiful. I think I had someone else mention that and she used nutrition basically to reverse. Yeah, the... exactly
1: right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Excellent. yeah. Nutrition. Nutrition was a really, a really central part of it. Yeah.
0: Beautiful. Well, you, when you talked about sitting in the, the cinema on your own, I came across a, a meme and probably a year and a half ago now. And it's so true. So I, I like to do the same thing. I like to go, you know, sometimes just go have breakfast on my own or see a movie or whatever, but they call it master dating. Well, you just you take yourself on a date. <laughs>
1: <laughs> one of the, you know for those for those of us who are who are introverts and uh, and uh, love love that time just to be in our own company, it's one of one of life's great pleasures, James.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find First in Wellness and Well Coaches Australia and your own website, um, what do you do to decompress?
1: Oh yeah. Um, so I, I try to um, I, I, I try to do I, I try to have a, a range of things that I can I can do at any one time. So so sometimes a decompression for me uh, can simply be getting up out of my office, um, walking into my kitchen. So my office is in my house. Walking into my kitchen. And, and just staring into the middle distance down the yard. We have lots of native birds here. Um, I spoke earlier about my, uh, my herb and vegetable garden. So sometimes I might just walk there for five minutes and, the, and my dog will come down with me. Um, so so a, little, a little, you know, three to five minute decompression um, something like that. If I want something, uh, if I want something more substantial, then I'll I'll go uh, trail walking in, um, you know, one of the number of national parks uh, around where I live. Um, my wife and I uh, love motorcycle riding. Um, I ride a uh, I ride a Royal Enfield um, 650 Twin, um, so uh, so I love getting out getting out on that and um, and uh, just going for a ride. Um, uh, and it, you know, I I I, my, I, I mentioned uh, I mentioned my uh, my boys who are now uh, you know in their early to mid twenties, um, and uh, one of them lives several hours away. But um, but you know, when when he comes down and the four of us are together, I love those times. Um, just to as a way of. Um, as a way of kind of t- tuning out the rest of the world and just being really focused on on the importance of um, of those immediate um, immediate family relationships, and I find that tremendously um, tremendously kind of re-energizing and invigorating to to spend that time with um, with the people that I call my family.
0: Fantastic! Yeah, that's a common theme over and over again: is family and nature. And, and once again, it's in yours too. So very powerful. Um, Okay, so then, firstly, where can people find first First in Wellness online, and then Well Coaches?
1: Yeah, so first First in Wellness very easy to find firstinwellness.com. Um, and uh, you can reach out to uh, you can reach out to Danielle uh, on uh, First in Wellness, and she'll be happy to uh, happy to uh, uh, explain the program and explain uh, explain what's involved. Um, if people want to people interested in uh, Well Coaches then in the US wellcoaches.com uh, over here wellcoachesaustralia.com.au um, but either way um, if people happened to uh, if people happen to uh, uh, Make contact with me, which some people do. In fact, I, just this morning, I was chatting with someone uh, also in Florida, as it happens, James, um, who uh, who found me in Well Coaches Australia, but uh, but is interested in in, uh, in studying. So I'll I'll refer her back there. But uh, yeah, people can reach out to me, wellcoachesaustralia.com.au. dot um, and uh, yeah, uh, there's a there's a form there that you can uh, you can uh, reach me via email. Very happy to. Uh, very happy to engage with people who, uh, who might want to find out more.
0: Fantastic. And then you have your own website too? I do. Um, uh,
1: SimonMatthewsConsulting.com um,
0: I- I'm sorry. I was going to say, what about social media? Do you have any presence there?
1: Uh, social media. Um, so Well Coaches Australia has LinkedIn and Facebook. Um, but that is uh, that is it. Um, so you can, you can find us on any of those channels. Um, uh, if you're interested in learning more, um, then jump on the website, sign up for the newsletter. Um, of course, follow us on social media, and that way you um, yeah you get l- lots of information about forthcoming courses and uh, and other things of interest uh, for people who you know uh, want to learn more about um, about health and wellness coaching.
0: Fantastic! All right, well, Simon, thank you so much. It's it's been a I'm always blown away that the different perspectives on the same kind of general subjects always pull out so many different topics and conversations and getting your principles on coaching, whether it's the mental health or even the physical health element, especially with that lens of how we do disease management at the moment has been invaluable. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show.
1: My pleasure, James. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.